Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great. Good morning, David. Right. So recently, President Biden has announced the United States is going to uh, remove itself from Afghanistan after nearly 20 years. He's announced a deadline of September 11th, uh, 2021 as the, the date, the deadline for removal of U.S. troops. Uh, this weekend actually also marked 10 years since uh, the United States uh, killed uh, Osama bin Laden. So I think it's a sort of opportune time to talk about uh, the war in Afghanistan, the longest war the United States has ever been in, depending on how you want to count these things, uh, and, and try to put this war and its ending into some context. Yeah, I, mean, I think the uh, interesting question for us, David, is not necessarily the war in Afghanistan itself, important as that is, because I think both of us would acknowledge that that's not an area of great expertise for us. But the much is made of the American way of war, and I think we need to consider the American way of ending wars mm. and then the ways that Americans um, call, call their conflicts to a close or draw their conflicts to a close, uh, or, or not as the case may be. So I think if we could provide some historical context for that issue, that would be that might be helpful to our to our listeners. Okay, I think we should give give sort of a brief summation of of sort of the, the major events of the war for those people who are are, are maybe not have, have studied this. The, the war uh, began in 2001 in the after, as a response to uh, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, it was believed that, that the Taliban, which was uh, in charge of Afghanistan, was harboring Osama bin Laden, uh, at which they were, in fact, in, at the end of 2001. Uh, and in October of 2001, the United States, uh, in a coalition with a number of countries, uh, launched an invasion of Afghanistan, uh, ostensibly to capture Os Osama bin Laden, but also to topple the, the Taliban regime that had harbored him. Uh, and it's been a war that's been continuing, you know, often in sort of in the background in the in the past 20 years, right? I think one of the things that, that struck me in thinking about preparing for this episode is that uh, this is a war that, despite going on for a very long time, is not something that is very frequently in the front pages of the newspaper. It's not something that's on the forefront of American consciousness. Um, you know, we've had a number of presidents uh, in, in, in charge over that period of time um, who have had different Afghanistan policies, um, but it's never been a major political issue in terms of, of the elections that we've had since then in the same way that, say, the Iraq war has. Um, you know, I think it's a war that, that many Americans uh, forget about and have forgotten about over the past 20 years, uh, with a few obvious exceptions at the moment when, when people haven't forgotten about it. Yeah, I think that's right, David. Um, I, I'd say a couple of things in response. One is, that invasion of October of 2001 is significant in terms of the history of U.S. foreign relations and, and, its, um, and the history of American diplomacy because it was the first time that NATO, the NATO alliance, um, entered into a conflict. And, and so, the, the, so ever since the, the commencement of the Afghan war, uh, as, as it's known to the, in the United States, um, the United States has fought alongside of, of many of its allies uh, during that conflict. I think that's, it, just as the war itself has been forgotten, I think the, the contribution of um, various NATO countries, often quite small countries, have suffered mm. disproportionately large uh, numbers of casualties. And I think that that has to be acknowledged. So I think that's part of it. I, you mentioned the Iraq war, and I think... Um, we, we don't have to rehearse the, the foreign policy of the Bush administration, or the second Bush administration, but um, George um, W. Bush's administration, um, you know, the, the Afghan war very quickly got folded into the Iraq war. And I think the controversy surrounding the, that, the latter conflict um, both drove the Afghan war out of the news slightly, um, but also confused people frankly, the, the two got wrapped up in, in each other, at least in the popular mind, at least in the first decade of this century. But it also had influent resonances beyond. So um, 
at approximately this time in the Obama administration, the first Obama administration, um, President Obama, over the objections, it should be said, of, of uh, Vice President, then Vice President, now President Biden, uh, was thinking about a so-called surge in Afghanistan. And that was because at that moment in the late aughts, there was a widespread belief that the surge in Iraq had been successful, that that had been led by uh, General David Petraeus when he was in charge in, in in Iraq. And he was the flavor of the month in Washington at that point, presented as an expert in counterinsurgency. And so President Obama had had toyed with and indeed um, enacted a smaller version of, 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 this, of George W. Bush's surge in Iraq in Afghanistan. So the, the two conflicts for a long time were, were kind of um, yoked together. And then I think... Since then, I mean, I think there's a war weariness on the part of the American public, uh, and it, it, the conflict faded from the news to some extent. Uh, I do think it did animate our; it has animated our politics occasionally. I mean, I think it, it's it's easy to forget this, given all the kind of tumult associated with the Trump presidency. But one of the things that Donald Trump pledged to do in 2015 and 16, when he was launching his campaign. And something that did really resonate with people was to end these forever wars that the United States has been involved in. Um, and, and I think that did partially attract, you know, Hillary Clinton back in 2016 was presented as a hawk. And Donald yeah. Trump and some people, some supporters of Donald Trump said, you know, he's actually going to get us out of these wars. So I think the, the, the conflict has had political resonances occasionally it's never been at the top of the agenda there's no yeah. doubt about that and frankly i think it was a little surprising to people when, when joe biden made this announcement two or three weeks ago uh because it really is, seems to be a repudiation of of his predecessors including the administration he was part of but i think joe biden just said look enough is enough <laughs> And, and it's time to end this conflict or end the American participation in this conflict, which, of course, will lead to the, the withdrawal of all of the NATO allies as well. Well, I mean, most of the you know, one of the things about this, the moment that you mentioned about that sort of in the early in the Obama administration with with the surge. And that's, you know, when you had, the U.S. had the most troops, something like 140,000 yeah. uh, troops. Uh, at, at sort of apex uh, that sort of culminates with uh, the killing of Osama bin Laden 10 years ago is basically at that point, many, uh, you know, NATO officially left uh, and lots of the other allies left, British forces left. Um, and so, you know, when the invasion happened in 2001, it was overwhelming, you know, it was this huge coalition and these coalition partnerships have, have all sort of, for the most part, fallen by the wayside in the past uh, decade as other nations have decided that they, it was the time for them to leave. Um, you know, and so trying to figure out so what is the U.S. mission in, in Afghanistan has been increasingly difficult for both politicians and military leaders to articulate, um, especially if the initial objective was to to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. After that point, what's the argument for keeping U.S. forces in Afghanistan it becomes increasingly uh, challenging. Uh Afghanistan often gets compared to, to Vietnam. Obviously, Vietnam was, uh, prior to this, America's longest war. There's a very well-known uh, book by, by, I guess, George Herring called America's Longest War About Vietnam, which I guess now needs to be rebranded. or uh, America's Second Longest War. <laughs> war, which doesn't have the same ring to it as a, as a book title. Uh in what ways is this war similar to in what way this is obviously the comparison that has been made many times going actually all the way back to, to 2001. Uh, how does this comparison work for you, Frank? Is it a, a app comparison? Where does it work? Where does it fall down? Well, it's a really long land war in Asia. Okay. So, so in a kind of facile way, <laughs> well, no, 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 but I, I'm, I mean, I do like to be facile as you know, but you know, there, there are certain superficial um, similarities. I think there are real Differences, however, um, as you say, the the at its peak there were about 140,000 American uh, troops in Afghanistan. Um, the and that peak wasn't very long, frankly. The Amer the U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan has not been 
that large um, for much of the past 20 years. And so I think that needs to be borne in mind, which partially explains the point you made at the beginning as to why it's been on the periphery of the consciousness and the media in the United States. Uh, you know, the, the presence in Vietnam was much higher and it was much longer. And frankly, the casualties, the U.S. casualties, and that's an important distinction, but if we're thinking about the, the uh, awareness on the part of, of the American public, uh, the U.S. casualties are much, much lower in Afghanistan than they ever were, than, than they were in Vietnam. I can't say than they ever were. And there was no draft. There was no draft. I mean, it, it's, it, I, actually, I actually don't think the comparison is terribly apt. And, and the United States was losing, and I'm using inverted mm. commas here, in, in Vietnam for a very, very long time. And to the extent that it really affected U.S., domestic politics and domestic policies. Um, There's no clear aims in Afghanistan, certainly for the second decade of the war, but it didn't, it just didn't have that kind of warping effect on the culture that Vietnam did in my view. Sorry, you're going to give us some figures. Well, I was just going to give you, you know, some numbers here. So, you know, with uh, if the peak uh, in Afghanistan was 140,000, the peak in Vietnam was over half a million. So right. three times as many uh, soldiers in terms of deaths. Uh, there were, 58,000 Americans killed in Vietnam uh, and only 3,000, I say only, but by comparison, a much smaller number of, of 3,000 American soldiers killed in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. Uh, so, so it doesn't have the same um, lethality f for, for Americans. As you point out that, 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 that it's a asymmetrical warfare, that casualties among the Afghan population have been enormous really throughout this period and in fact for much of the past 50 years in Afghanistan um, you know and I think there's a but couple it, of factors that have sort of led to that people have tried to figure out sort of you know how do we make sense of these casualty figures obviously battlefield medicine is better now than it was in Vietnam so we're actually saving a lot of soldiers lives who, who previously who would have died uh, you know from wounds 20 or 30 or 40 50 years ago um, the increased use of drone warfare, I think, is, is, is very important and one of the sort of distinctive elements of the war on terror more broadly, but the war in Afghanistan in particular, that uh, I think there's been a real desire to minimize U.S. casualties uh, through uses of, of sort of technological warfare that, that kills a lot of people but doesn't put a lot of Americans at risk. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think that the absence of the draft is, is a, a really an important distinction about the sort of kind of warfare and the way it impacts the home front. Um, one of the things that struck me in thinking about Afghanistan and how long this war has been going on is how many soldiers have done multiple tours of duty in Afghanistan. I mean, there are thousands of, of, of soldiers who have who've done three, four, five, six tours of duty in Afghanistan, whereas in Vietnam, if you had done two tours, that was considered a lot. Um, and I think that's a, it's a very different kind of war in that respect. Uh, another sort of wrinkle for the casualty figures, of course, is this is a war in which uh, the U.S. is using a phenomenal number of contractors yeah, I was going to say uh, that, that, that the, the use of mercenaries is, is really important here. Um, and not only sort of mercenaries on the battlefield, but also, you know, sort of contractors for, um, you know, all kinds of support and logistical things that were previously in, say, Vietnam done by soldiers. Uh, and so I think one of the ways in which you know, that can, can factor into things has to do with sort of, you know, when people say, oh, we're reducing troop levels. Well, does that actually mean they're reducing the number of people that the United States is paying to have in a particular place? Maybe yes, maybe no, because, uh, you know, the ways in which contracting is, is accounted for in a, both a human way and in a sort of economic way is, uh, is very different in the way that soldiers are accounted for. Uh, so there are obviously some phenomenal differences with Vietnam. I mean, I guess the, the similarities people point to are the fact that both of these are counterinsurgencies, you know, that, that the, the people the United States are fighting against are uh, technologically uh, 
and financially and, and numerically often a phenomenal disadvantage uh, and are using um, you know the, the tools of, of insurgents, whether that's you know ambushes, booby traps, uh, those kinds of, of uh, you know landmines, those kinds of devices to to um, fight their war. Obviously, both Vietnam and, and Afghanistan are part of much larger ideological conflicts, whether it's uh, the Cold War or the War on Terror. Um, Any other similarities come to mind, Frank? No, I mean, as I said, I actually think the comparison is too simple and it actually distorts. I think, uh, I mean, to some extent, U.S. foreign policy and the history of conflict uh, for the United States uh, has been shaped by the Vietnam War and the memory of the Vietnam War. Mm past now nearly 50 years, and I'm not sure it's always entirely helpful. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I would be with you. The Vietnam syndrome has been has a, has a very long shadow. Um, but I think one of the reasons, sorry, one of the consequences of it is the way this war has been waged, and, and, and you've discussed this, uh, the with the emphasis on, on avoiding U.S. and allied casualties, if at all hmm. possible, um, even if that means inflicting greater casualties, uh, civilian casualties, um, as a consequence, is a direct legacy of the Vietnam War. There's, there's no doubt about that, that the United States has heavily invested in, in, in tactics and technology that allows it to wage war quite effectively from mm. afar with relatively, and I have to stress this, relatively few U.S. casualties. That's a direct mm. result of the, I think, of the, the lessons of Vietnam, as well as improvements in battlefield medicine and, sure. and all, the, all the things, we, you know, you were mentioning in technological changes. But, um, yeah, you I know, think, that, I think it, you know, well, the, we went, the United States went into Vietnam fighting it almost like Korea or the Second World War. Mm. It did not go into Afghanistan fighting like that. It went into Afghanistan trying to learn the lessons of previous counterinsurgencies, including Vietnam. Yeah, I mean, I, just the more I think about this, the, the similarities that people point out do do, I think, bear some some fruit. I mean, I think in both cases the United States was, you know, backing a civilian government which wasn't necessarily the greatest civilian government, right? We can think about the ZM regime in Vietnam. We can think about the various, uh, you know, political leaders in Afghanistan that have have come and gone. Um, you know and the kind of corruption that has been documented in Afghanistan over the past 20 years as a, as a sort of problematic measure. You know, there, there were efforts to create a, democ a democracy in both places that um, didn't really bear the fruit that, that the Americans hoped it would. Uh, in both wars, it spilled over into neighboring countries, whether that's in Pakistan with Afghanistan or uh, in Laos and Cambodia, in the case of Vietnam. Um, but I think you're right that these are, are you know, fundamentally uh, different wars. I mean, one, one thing to bear in mind, and I, and I hope this doesn't necessarily play out in the same way, but th mm. there is a similarity that occurs to me, David, when we think about winding down, which is what happens to the allies of the United States, those who fought beside the United States or with mm. the United States, um, as the United States leaves, and and you know the, the history in Vietnam was certainly mixed on that score, and the history uh, that we've seen in both Afghanistan and Iraq uh, as the United States has drawn down has not been great in terms of granting refugee status to translators and other mm. allies who fought fought with the United States, and and uh, these these people and their families have often been subject to retribution. I hope the Biden administration will be, um, uh, well, I was going to say magnanimous, but that's actually the wrong way to, to, to frame it. I hope it will be just hmm. um, in, in, in its approach to these questions um, uh, in the in the coming months, because they're going to become quite urgent. Right. You know, and the, you know, what's, what was clear, I think, in, you know, after the, the Paris Peace Treaty in, in 1973, and what is not quite clear, but seems to be most likely scenario in Afghanistan is the Taliban will um, 
be able to maintain control over the parts of Afghanistan it currently controls and maybe gain control over most of the country uh, once the the you know few U.S. troops that are there uh, leave uh, in the next few months, and the troops are leaving now, is is, is my understanding. So that the drawdown has already begun. How does this compare? I mean, I guess the, the third longest war, if we're going to count these kinds of things, Frank, uh, is is if uh, is the American Revolution. Uh, how does the drawdown of war differ? Well, there are there are some similarities um, in that you know the British, you know the, the the major fighting in the American War of Independence, at least east of the Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, Ends in 1781, although there's sporad- there, there's not inconsiderable fighting after that. But but you know after the, the Battle of Yorktown's the last big campaign of the war. But the British don't evacuate places like New York and Charleston till 1783. And there is a sl- you know there's a humiliating exit for the British from mm. from New York uh, in 1783. That's you know uh, it's not exactly like the helicopters leaving Saigon. <laughs> In 1973, but it's, it's it's not the finest moment in the history of the British military. So that I mean, there are some simplistic comparisons. I don't think the comparisons are very apt. I mean, we're talking about you know, warfare in the 18th century was very very different from mm. from warfare in the 21st century. I do think this does call into question I mean, this. Oh, which is the longest war? Mm. Questions of periodization, um, and and. Sorry, before I get to that, uh, one thing one could argue is the American War of Independence was a counter; it was an insurgency, and the British attempted to wage a counterinsurgency. So there are some, there are okay. interesting similarities, and there was there was an interesting historiography in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, during and after the Vietnam War, making just this point. But anyway, that's that might be for another day. But I'm interested in the periodization and how we how we as historians think about the end of war wars and conflicts, hmm. but how the United States, whether it has, a, is there a uniquely American way to either end or not end conflict? So I, so I, I think that's the, an interesting question. So with regard to the, the, the war of independence, you know, officially it ends in 1783 with the peace of Paris. Well, sort of, I mean, the British continue to occupy forts in, in the Northwest territory in modern Ohio until 1794. There's a prolonged battle with Native Americans that continues, basically um, doesn't stop in 1783, continues down to at least 1794. And one could argue, and you and I were talking about this mm-hmm. offline, doesn't really stop until the peace, you know, the, the, the peace ending the War of 1812 and in, in, at the end of 1814. And, and so you could think of the, uh, you could think of almost a 60 years war from 1754 to 1815 if you wanted to, in, in Eastern North America. Um, and, and that would be a totally reasonable way to frame it. Indeed, I, in something I wrote many years ago, I made that very argument. I don't know how useful that is. How, what, let, let me put it to you this way, David. You wrote a book about the end of the American Civil War. You wrote a book about yeah. surrender. So, so, so let, let me flip this around and ask you, when does the Civil War end? And how do you, how do you measure, the? is there an American way of ending wars? Or is that is that a silly question? Well, uh, those, those are both tricky questions. I'll see if I can, um, and I think I have lots of thoughts about both of them. Uh, you know, when we think about the end of the Civil War, people often use the events at Appomattox Courthouse uh, as a shortcut. You know, so people often right. talk uh, about Appomattox as the end of the war, um, which drives me nuts in part because I wrote a book about this. But, um, you know, when Appomattox happens, it wasn't entirely clear to the people who were involved there that the war was over. Lincoln didn't think the war was over. There were still several major Confederate armies in the field. Jefferson Davis didn't think the war was over. Um, and there's a whole sort of series of surrenders after, after Appomattox, at Bennett Place, and, and a bunch of other places. Um, there isn't any major fighting, but but the war doesn't end, you know, uh, in the McLean Parlor on uh, you know in early April. Um, of 1865. So there's the argument that the war sort of ends in a piecemeal slow fashion. There are other, uh, lots of historians though are really saying that when we, even if we take 1865, whether it's April 1865 or May 1865 as an end point, that that distorts as much as it illuminates in as much as Confederates went home uh, 
defeated and officially surrendered, but people who had not given up on, on the ideals that they had fought for, the main maintenance of white supremacy, um, you know, slavery may be gone, but they want to recreate slavery in all but that in, in the period immediately afterwards. And we can think about the huge amount of violence that happens at, uh, during Reconstruction. And some historians have looked at things like the Memphis Massacre, looked at things like the Colfax Massacre, looked at, at you know, a, a whole series of events that happened in 1866 and onwards and say, well, this looks a lot like war, right? I mean, it looks like maybe a different kind of war than the kind of pitched battle you saw from 1861 to 1865, but it still looks a whole lot not like peacetime. And so different historians have, have uh, you know, and especially in the, in the past few years, in part thinking about a Iraq and Afghanistan for, for making sense about how wars end, um, you know, have, have postulated merely that, that our divisions between civil war and reconstruction is two separate periods that one happens and the other happens as kind of an artificial construct. And that we really need to think about the U.S. occupation of the South at the end of the war and how long that lasts in different forms, how the United States fought against the Klan. Um, as a continuation in some ways of, of the events of the war itself and, and not divorced from it. Um, you know, people push back against that. Gary Gallagher says that's nonsense. The war ends in 1865. The stuff that happens afterwards is entirely different. And so there, I think there's some historiographic debate going on at the moment. Um, but one of the things that strikes me about the ends of the war is Americans like wars to end neatly. You know, and I'm thinking here about sort of the end of, of World War II with the surrender of Japan, where it's like there's a wartime and there's peacetime. Um, Not just Americans, David, everybody does. Well, to be fair, yes. Um, but I'm also thinking, therefore, about sort of, you know, George W. Bush and the sort of mission accomplished sign, um, you know, about then look, we, we, you know, in that case, he was talking about Iraq and, and, and look at that war. He said, look, we have, we, we have completed our objective. The war is won. And as we both know, and, and all of our listeners know, uh, you know, that war continued in a variety of forms much after that period. You know, and, and uh, I think uh, um, Americans, I think, like to think of themselves as, as a peaceful people that occasionally go to war. Um, rather than a country that is basically almost always at war. Um, and I think there's a, a framework in which you could sort of flip that and say, well, actually, the, United, the amount of times the United States is actually at peace with its neighbors and with its enemies around the world uh, is relatively rare. Um, and I think that sort of speaks in some ways to why Afghanistan may have been in the background for, for part of the much of the past 20 years is because, uh, you know, Americans don't want to think about sort of these sort of ongoing conflicts. Uh, much in the same way that, that I think sort of the, you know, if you think about the 19th century, uh, wars against Native Americans were almost constant really through, throughout the entire century. But Americans didn't think of themselves as being constantly involved in two or three or four wars simultaneously. Um, yeah, the, the wars that they, they saw as, as, as sort of legitimate wars were ones that are well-defined beginnings and well-defined endings. Um, and I think we you know, historians have been reconsidering that. I mean, one an example that comes to mind, you know, is the Spanish-American War, you know, which is a... You know, the war against Spain didn't last very long at all. It lasted really a matter of months. But, you know, thinking about that war as part of uh, the sort of sustained involvement of the United States in the Philippines, uh, you know, that lasted for, you know, U.S. occupation of the Philippines lasted for decades, but the war in the Philippines lasted for 
years and years and years, much longer than the war against Spain did and, and with much higher casualties than the war against Spain did if you consider civilian casualties uh, in the Philippines. Um, you know, I, I think when people think about that war, they think about the two or three months in Battle of San Juan Hill. Uh, they don't necessarily think about the sort of very lengthy counterinsurgency campaign uh, in, in the Philippines uh, in 1899, you know, 1900, 1901. Um, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the Americans like a clean end to war, and I think wars very rarely end cleanly. Right. I think. I mean, I, I, I think both of those points are true, and you're right. There are very few moments like VE and VJ Day, mm -hmm. or the you know the 11th of November, 1918. Um, and even those aren't terribly clean endings, as, as we know. I mean, the, the American troops are still on the Rhine. They've been there longer than the Romans were. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, the, the, there are still U.S. troops in, 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 in Korea. Uh, oh, to be sure. Uh, and theoretically, that was a, you know, not at the end. That war didn't end. It still it was a truce, et cetera, et cetera. So, so um, part of this is... the nature of great power diplomacy and the, and the role of great powers as um, uh, either guarantors or destroyers of world mm. <laughs> of peace in the world or parts of the world. And so uh, at least in the, it, since the second half of the 20th century, I think that helps explain the prolonged um, not quite peace. The United States has been involved in an often outright war mm. I do think your point about the 19th century and, and wars against Native Americans is 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 an important one to bear in mind because it's it's used to be certainly the version of this I got in school, um, you know, it was, oh well there was a there was the War of 1812 and then there's this. The war with Mexico in 1846, mm. and then the Civil War happened, and then at the end of the century was the Spanish-American War, and you know wars with Native Americans weren't classed in the same kind of category as those those conflicts, and 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 we we don't do that anymore, and rightly so. And the history of the 19th century looks entirely different um, American history in the 19th century when you reframe it in those terms. I think bringing wars to an end is very, very hard for states to do, as you've said. But it also suggests that the, the kind of second part of my the question I raised a few minutes ago, which is how historians choose to, to define periods mm. um, has a lot to do with this in terms of how we understand these kinds of things. And so my, my brief summary of my, you know, the mm. school board version of the 19th century I got many years ago is, is, is a good example of that. So let me take you know my period of expertise, mm. the American Revolution. So very few people would say, okay, the War of Independence went from 1775 to 1781 anymore, which you can still see that in some old textbooks. Yeah. They at least say 1783, but most of them say, actually, there's this prolonged aftermath too. Um, and and we, we recognize this. And so, I, you know, I wasn't being entirely flippant when I suggested a 60 years war from 1754 to 18. 15. I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to understand what, what was happening in Eastern North America during that, yeah. that time period. Um, similarly, you know, in your period, nobody says just straightly, well, it's narrow military historians mm. of a certain type might focus on 1861 to 1865, but most of them are missing the point, right? Um, so it's, it, there's a prolonged aftermath and we know there's a, the, 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 the prequels pretty long, too, mm. long and bloody too, going back to bloody Kansas and things like that. Uh, so how we choose to periodize is mm. Interesting, and it's not like there's a committee of historians that decides these things. It kind of goes in the direction the historiography does, and I think at the moment we tend to think in we're thinking in more kind of capacious terms. Before we went on, mm -hmm. I suggested to you, and you you weren't entirely persuaded uh, that well, we could think of the great period. I say great in terms of scale. This isn't an adjective of praise. Uh, the kind of great conflicts of the early 20th century, the First and Second World Wars. Some historians would bracket those together as one long 30 years war from 1914 to 45. And I think that's reasonable. 
I would I suggested to you and you were a little skeptical about this, so I'll, I'll put it to you again okay. now on air and see if you now that you had a chance to think about it. So to, I, to think about your deep thoughts. Yes, I will, I've been that actually the way to think about the conflict that begins in 1914 is it's a great what what you're seeing are the tectonic plates of the large global, mainly European empires or Eurasian empires shifting and a period of decolonization is beginning. You're seeing those empires start to fall apart. And basically between 1940, you have to think about a period from 1914 down to 1989, which encompasses the First World War and its aftermath, including the Russian Revolution and the Russian Civil War, takes us through the Second World War, but also the Cold War, because throughout this, what we get is a remaking of the global system and the end, at least the, the end for many of these empires of their status as empires and decolonization and the emergence of new or revised political entities. Entities We see the rise and fall of the Soviet Union. You have the, um, if you will, the recreation of a U.S.-dominated West, and I'm using West in inverted commas, um, the, the Chinese Civil War and the rise of China. There's like, all this is starting and, and going on between 1914 and 1989. David, we're entering exam exam season. This is a final exam question. One should think of 19 1914 to 1989 is a singular period of global conflict. Discuss. All right. Well, so my response to that would be, <laughs> if we're going to have that sort of thirty thousand foot view of how how history works. Why stop in 1989, right? The, the, the war in Afghanistan is an outgrowth in some ways of all those same forces uh, with imperialism and the Cold War and the aftermath of the Soviet invasion, uh, you know, and um, so, yeah, uh, likewise, you know, many of the other conflicts that the world is facing right now, whether it's, it, it has to do with uh, the you know, Russia in, in the Ukraine, um, all of that is fundamentally, you know, if you're talking about it in the sort of uh, meta-historical forces, you, you can't divorce that from the, the aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Um, so, you know, why can't we have it go from, you know, if this is your framework, 1914 until 2057? you know, some event in the future, uh, right, that, you know, right. so like, you know, all periodization is artificial. Our periodization distorts as much as it illuminates, or maybe it distorts a fraction of what it illuminates. Who knows? Um, you know, the, the, these frameworks of when things begin and end um, are, as, we, as you point out, you know, interpretive as much as they are uh, factual. Um, you know, one of the important shifts thinking about sort of the ways in which this is taught is for a very long time, uh, you know, American history was, and, and this is still the case in, in, in a number of American universities um, and was true at our university until fairly recently, you know, American history was split into two halves and the first half used to end in 1865, you know, and you'd end it with, Appomattox, Lincoln assassination, here's your exam, Merry Christmas. That would be the first semester. And then the second semester would pick up there, sort of. Um, but then usually they, you know, speed, you know, fast forward to the 20th century, which is usually when people get interested in that course. Um, you know, and in the past 20 years, the shift has been to 1877 is the, the split off period, which I think is a, a better one than 1865 in part because I'm interested in the, that, that connection between the Civil War and Reconstruction. But, you know, I think we, all of these dates are, are interpret, interpretive, right? I mean, I think the end of Reconstruction is an interpretation uh, as much as anything else, too. So, you know, 1877 only means things because C. Van Woodward told us it meant something 50 years ago. Uh, 70 years ago. A long time ago. Um, but you can pick other dates for the end of Reconstruction and, and defend that with uh, vigor if you want to. Um, well, and I think that a big part of this depends on perspective. And, and so we're still 
when one is talking about conflicts in many respects, mm. one is particularly wed to the histories of nation states because nation states have it among one of their chief attributes, waging war. Mm. <laughs> and therefore, so, so we're really, we, we really are um, caught in, in national paradigms and, and national ways of understanding things. And these things look different depending on, we happen to be historians of the United mm. States. We happen to be American citizens too, but they look very different depending on what particular uh, national or regional perspective you're looking at it from. I think, I think that that's an important aspect of this as well. Now, when we get to, or we or our descendants, uh, academic descendants, uh, you know, have to teach about the war in Afghanistan. What are they, what are, what are our academic descendants going to say about this war and what it means about U.S. foreign policy, uh, the United States more broadly. Is this a war the United States lost, which is often not a framework that Americans are very comfortable with when, in discussing wars? Um, and I think, a lot, you know, thinking about Vietnam, lots of Americans find ways to... to... It was a tie! <laughs> exactly, you know. It's like the War of 1812 was a tie. <laughs> Vietnam yeah. was a loss. Um, I mean, I, um, I, I mean, well, I think I, you know, that's a very interesting question, David. And, and I think the answer is it's too early to tell. I think it will depend on what the subsequent history of mm. Afghanistan and Central Asia is. And the reason I say that is, okay, if, if the Taliban maintains power, which seems likely, at least in the short mm. term, uh, but Afghanistan becomes... A provides haven to terrorists who continue who attack the United States in a 9/11 style, 10 or 15 years from now. And let's God, you know, God knows we don't want that to happen. But Leo, you know, if that happens, then th this war will be seen as a as a failure. Hmm. If Afghanistan is not, I mean, I I, I don't. I don't think the United States was ever in a position to do much to control the 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 fate of Afghanistan in the long term. Hmm. Um, but but if Afghanistan is not a does not pose a danger to the United States and its allies um, hmm. in any significant way, and if the United States you know, we, we don't know how the next few decades are going to go. So if this mm. is, if, if what we see is the steady diminution of American influence around the world, and this is, uh, you know, uh, the United States is truly in, is in, in a kind of decline from which it will not recover, then this will be seen as a symptom of that and a turning point. If that is not the case, you know, mm. if, if, if the United States um, finds a way to manage the, the rise of China effectively, or at least to present you know, the, the, these nation states actually have relatively little control over these macro events, I think. So that's mm. why uh, I, I'm not sure the United States or any of its leaders will have this much control. But if the perception is that the United States has managed to um, deal with a China that's seemingly ascendant and still maintain an important global role and, frankly, a hegemonic global role, then this conflict will be a bit like the Philippine insurgency, something that was terrible for the people of Afghanistan or the Philippines, mm. but didn't have a lasting impact on the United States, frankly. Hmm. It, so, so these things are, the perception of these conflicts to, to a certain extent um, is determined by what comes after, I think. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think there's gonna be a, a, a pretty big impact on the US military. Yeah. I mean, I think the ways in which the military is going to think about its own, how it plans and how it sort of articulates objectives, I think is going to be shaped for many years by, by what's happened in Afghanistan. Um, you know, one of the things that, the, thinking about the comparison with, with Vietnam, uh, one, one of the, the things that came out in 2019 was a, a huge number of interviews that were published in the Washington Post, which is sort of a parallel to the, the Pentagon Papers, uh, of uh, these were interviews that were conducted by the uh, Special uh, Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction. But it, they sort of interviewed all the sort of lead players in Afghanistan, uh, sort of while it was going on. And basically, what all of them said was, "This war is not going well. We have no clear objectives." 
you know, before I was sent to Afghanistan, I, I was asked what the objectives were and nobody could tell me. Um, but at the same time, and this is where the parallel with the Pentagon Papers seems quite astute or quite clear, is those same people, when they were testifying in public during those times, said, we are making progress. It's unclear what progress means if you don't know what your objective is, but we are making progress. Our strategy is working. We had it. And the sort of disjuncture between what these guys were saying in private and what they were saying in public, you know, uh, I think they're, the military is going to be reflecting on that uh, for many years, much in the same way the military reflected upon Vietnam uh, for, for many years afterwards, about how, um, what mistakes it made in this war and, and were they, mis were they mistakes that, you know, things could have gone differently if they had done A instead of B. Um, I'm not quite sure that things could have gone necessarily gone differently um, if they had done A instead of B, but, but I think that's something they're going to be thinking about for, for many years to come. Sure. I mean, I think the military, and again, I don't think this is unique to the United States. I mean, I think they always reflect on their latest conflict and, and lessons to be learned and not... Uh, but but wars are ultimately political decisions, and war, war you know wars are wars, and, and especially in a democracy, um, you know I, I think the political lessons are more important almost than the military lessons. One of the areas in which is this, this is going to be a difficult war to reflect on, and I've heard some uh, army historians talk about this, is how few historians they've had on the ground in Afghanistan, as compared to previous wars. Yeah, that that in World War II, the both the army and the navy had huge teams of historians document the progress of the war and and, and to make sure that, that things were filed correctly and all these kinds of things. Same was true in Korea. Same was true in Vietnam. In Vietnam, they had an office of twenty historians in Saigon to to make sure that 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 war was chronicled. And they have all kinds of reports that historians now use to sort of make sense of 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 events. Uh, in Vietnam based on that work that historians were doing on the ground there. Um, those offices in Afghanistan have largely been shut down in part to try to sort of keep troop numbers down because many of the, you know, in these previous wars, these were people who were both active duty soldiers and uh, historians simultaneously. Uh, and so intriguingly, we may end up with less evidence in the future for historians to work with to make sense of this conflict. Uh, we've likewise had fewer journalists in Afghanistan than we did in, in Vietnam. And part of that's a policy decision. Um, and there's sort of political reasons behind that, but I think it's going to have a huge impact in terms of how historians are able to sort of reconstruct this war in, in future years. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds uh, in the decades to come. All right, Frank, I guess it's time for last drops. What you got? Yeah, I just want to remind people, uh, I, I'm going to repeat last week's last drop. I want to remind people about Annette Gordon-Reed's upcoming Fennel Lecture, which is on May 13th. So it's next week. Uh, there's a, which is on uh, the end of a war. It is actually. That's right. It's on her new book on Juneteenth. Uh, which is uh, appearing in the UK. I think the UK publication date is tomorrow. Um, so, uh, and if you're listening in the US, I think it just arrived in bookstores this week. So you may uh, wander down to your local Barnes and Noble or local independent bookstore uh, and pick up a copy. That's right. And so Annette, um, who, who's a very fine historian, uh, probably one of our finest uh, living historians, to be sure, at, at the moment uh, in the United States and of the United States, uh, will be speaking about her new book next week, May 13th at 7 p.m. BST. We'll put the link in the show notes. We're about to advertise this to 20,000 alumni across uh, around the world. Um, uh, especially in, in the U.S. and Canada. So if you want to, uh, if you want to get a ticket for this, the tickets are free, but you need to book in advance. You should book now because they may become tougher to get by the end of the week in the next few days. So there'll so be scalpers today. in the secondary market for, for getting tickets. It's going to be crazy. So get your tickets now while they're free, um, and don't buy fake tickets. <laughs> don't buy, right. Exactly. You'll find yourself in a Zoom room by yourself. <laughs> Oh man! All right. Anyway, sorry, David. What's your what's your so sorry? Let me let me just sum that up. So it's May thirteenth at seven p.m. BST, two o'clock Eastern, eleven uh, Pacific. Um, 
and and it will be done it will be online and the link will be in the show notes but you need a you do need to register in advance so please do that david what's your last drop uh i just want to point people to a story uh on npr about a, a pair of statues and i guess there's there's actually maybe more than more than two of of hannah dunston uh who is a, a figure from a New England colonial history, um, uh, who is and the controversy over a couple of statues to her. Uh, the story, her story, essentially, at least the sort of commonly uh, the traditional version of the story, is that she was a uh, English woman who was kidnapped at the end of the 17th century, who then uh, killed her captors with a, a hatchet uh, and and liberated herself. Um, I think that's the way the story is traditionally told. And that's sort of the ways, the sort of version of the story that's embodied in these uh, statues to her. Uh, but the NPR story goes into some controversies about these communities, figuring out what to do about these statues. There are people in the communities who really like the statues, people in the communities who are obviously uh, hostile to the statues and the ways in which they, they present this history. Uh, it includes people who are both descendants of, of, of Hannah Dunstan and, uh, Native Americans who have very strong feelings about this. Um, and it's a another interesting place to sort of think about uh, monument culture uh, in, a, in a slightly different context than the sort of the Confederate monuments that we've talked about many times. So uh, I recommend people to take a look at that story. Excellent. Great until next week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.